the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Financialfoodforthought.com. That's 440-239-2090 or Financialfoodforthought.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land... We unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country cheers the sweet land of liberty of the Arctic. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it. Now or ever, we are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob Frantz. Well, how about that? We made it to the end of the week. It is a Friday, and it is eight minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock, and we are underway. Good morning. It's the 22nd morning of the 12th month of the year of our Lord, 2023. And uh, it's our last live broadcast uh, that I will be hosting uh, before the Christmas holiday, which, which of course, obviously is Monday. But... uh, Next week is going to be a week of uh, fun stuff as we uh, bring you a best of show on Tuesday and we bring you Khalid Namar for a couple of days next week and we bring you Peter Kersenow next week. So uh, I'm going to be taking a little bit of time at the end of the year as many people are wont to do and uh, we've got great, great, that's one thing I love about having such a deep bench of talented people. Uh, to uh, take us through next week. So this is my last live broadcast of the, uh, well, again, of this week and certainly before Christmas. And as I think about it, I guess that takes us into the new year. It takes us into the following weekend and uh, New Year's Day on Monday. So this is my last live broadcast of the year. Didn't really think about it, though, that way until just now. 
So um, let's make it count. What do you say? Big day, important stuff to talk about, some good news, some troubling news, all very important news. We have one guest, and I beg your pardon, two guests are going to be joining us on the program this morning, coming up in about an hour at 1010. We're going to talk to a woman named Jamie Reed. Who is Jamie Reed, you may be, may be wondering. And until I heard her story, I would have wondered the same thing. Now I know who she is, though. She is a 42-year-old queer woman, as she describes herself. She is also somebody who describes herself as politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. Yeah, she is one of those. But on a very important issue, she and I see eye to eye. And that is protecting children from the scourge of this trans uh, nation that we have become, from uh, from this experimental, surgical, and uh, biological, uh, uh, you know, processes that so many people are subjecting themselves to, starting with the kids at the youngest ages. She worked for a transgender clinic for four years. And she watched what happened to kids, and she saw, watched how they were uh, urged and encouraged to hurry up and get right into this program and to start the drugs, start the chemical castration, start the process without actually finding out what their needs were, without finding out what their mental health was all about and so forth. She became so disgusted by what she saw, even though she herself is a queer woman who is married to what she calls a trans man, otherwise known as a woman, but who identify, or I'm sorry, a, uh, yeah, a trans man, so somebody who is a woman but identifies as a man. Um, whatever. I, I'm not here to judge her situation. I'm here because she, and I'm bringing her here, because she is working very, very hard to sound the alarm on what is being done to kids by clinics like the one she worked for. Um, in St. Louis, she was at the Washington University Transgender uh, Gender Center at the St. Louis Children's Hospital. She left there last year just uh, aghast at what she saw, and now she wants everybody to know how dangerous this is. So that conversation is coming at 1010 this morning. At 1110, we're going to talk about Ohio politics, and we're going to preview the March 19th Ohio primary. David Arredondo is going to be joining us. He is a uh, uh, former chairman of the Lorraine County Republican Party. That's my county, by the way. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the races and about what we can expect in March. But those are our guests today. The rest of the time is yours. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Either one of those numbers will get you here. So we've got a lot of things to talk about this morning. And I'm going to start with good news after we do our Pledge of Allegiance because we don't have enough of it. And I'll tell you what that is. But first, Patriots. Stand up, wherever you might be. If you're driving, that's okay. You don't have to do that part. But uh, at least face your flag if you have one. Put your hand on your heart and join us for our Pledge of Allegiance to the flag that represents this great country. If you are a Marxist, if you are a socialist, if you believe in the Biden administration surrendering all of American sovereignty to globalists, well, then don't pretend you like the flag or the country. Don't stand there and virtue signal. Just be honest with yourself. Instead, you take a knee like the unemployed socialist quarterback and all of his socialist Marxist friends. As for the rest of us, however, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. 
So most mornings we're reacting as we start our show to some of the negative news of of the night before or the day before, and I could do that. I could sit here and talk about uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre, the diversity hire press secretary, saying this is normal. This is all totally normal, what's happening at the border at this time of year. Record numbers of crossings. The invasion continues unabated because they do not want to slow it down in the Biden administration. I could start with that negative stuff. I could start with um, the fact that they are attempting uh, to erase American democracy by by uh, disallowing the leading contender for the presidency of the United States of either party, at least according to polling for what that's worth, but denying him a spot on the ballot, not just in Colorado. Yesterday, I told you they're working on that in uh, California today. I can tell you that New York Democrats are working on that in that state as well. This is no surprise to anybody, but we could start with that negative stuff as they try to deny Donald Trump a place on the ballot and deny Americans the chance to vote for the candidate of their choice. But I'm going to start with something positive, because we need it. Last week, I spoke with uh, Jake Lang. Seth, what day was that? Was that, was that, uh, it was late in the week, I think it was, wasn't it? Thursday or Friday? Thursday. Okay, a week ago yesterday. Thank you. Jake Lang is, um, and I've spoken with Trevor Kane from Aurora. He is another J6 defendant who is facing extraordinary charges for uh, not extraordinary uh, allegations and crimes, but most importantly, particularly in Jake's case, Jake Lang has been held in a uh, has been held in a uh, gulag in Washington D.C. now for over 1000 days without a trial. His due process rights, his constitutional rights have been stripped from him. Uh, he has been kept for the majority of that time in isolation in a uh, uh, 23-hour lockdown, essentially. Uh, now he told me they've eased up on it. Now he's only in isolation and lockdown for 20 out of the 24 hours a day. I cannot believe that he was in this, the spirits that he was as he continues to remain optimistic about this great country and about his uh, chances of being uh, uh, vindicated, I guess, if and when he ever gets his trial that has been denied to him. So we see and we're watching the case of the J6ers, so many of them whose rights have been violated, and we're just, we're just you know, appalled by it, as we should be. Which brings me to this. Now, this is not a J6er prevailing in a criminal court case, but this is a victory nonetheless. Brandon Straka has won an enormous victory. There was a civil case against him that was brought by the uh, Soros-funded Washington, D.C. nonprofit law firm, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Uh, Brandon Straka was sued by a bunch of Capitol Hill police officers who alleged that he did terrible things to them during the quote-unquote insurrection that we all know was a protest that was ginned up into a riot by a bunch of federales. Brandon Straka was sued by these police officers. His case is now over. What happened to him, and why am I reporting this as good news? I'll let him tell you what happened to him. Ladies and gentlemen, at a time when it feels like there is absolutely no justice for conservatives or anybody who's connected in any way, shape, or form with January 6th, we have been handed a victory. I have prevailed on all counts against me in the civil lawsuit that was leveled against me by eight Capitol Police officers. From the very beginning, like so many other things connected with January 6th, 
This case was a complete and total lie. The plaintiffs in this case are eight Capitol Police officers, most of whom are black and brown. And they're all being represented pro bono by the Soros-funded nonprofit law firm out of Washington, D.C., Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Here are the lawyers that drove this case to proceed against me. Now, this is video. So Ed Casper, Deputy Chief Counsel, one of them. Uh, Joshua Margolin, a partner in that firm. And these are the Capitol Police officers who participated in this farce. And their names are listed here. Conrad Smith, Annie McElroy, Byron Evans, Governor Latson, Melissa Marshall, Michael Fortune, Jason What's really sick and twisted and disturbing about this case is that it not only exists by perpetuating forward the many, many lies being exploited by the left about January 6th, but also the many, many lies being perpetuated and exploited by the left about race. These Capitol Police officers participating as plaintiffs in this case, mostly whom are black and brown, sued me, along with numerous other people, under the KKK Act, alleging a civil rights conspiracy against them and alleging that this was a white supremacist attack against them. The lies that they concocted to drive their case forward. I want to back that up for just a second, if I may, because this is this is important. The lawsuit that was filed against Brandon Straka, who was there on January 6th, was filed under the KKK Act, something I didn't know existed, by the way, the Ku Klux Klan Act, uh, a D.C. bias-related crimes act, and other things, and they alleged these black and brown Capitol Hill police officers alleged that Brandon Straka attacked them, not just as part of the quote-unquote riot-slash-insurrection, but attacked them because of their color, which made him akin to the KKK. This is astounding, but this is what the allegation was. I want to underscore that. Go ahead. That this was a white supremacist attack against them. The lies that they concocted to drive their case forward included alleging that I engaged in the riot by joining with hundreds of attackers on the U.S. Capitol grounds and that I appeared before crowds repeating Trump's false election fraud claims and made threats of violence to stop the count of the electoral votes. They go on to quote an example of that. Strzok told a crowd at a November 6, 2020 rally in Detroit that people are out of their effing minds if they think that we're going to sit down quietly and allow them to steal this election. Strzok proclaimed, we are not going to take it, directed others to never, ever back down and pledged he would do whatever needs to be done to make sure that Donald Trump is victorious as our president for four more years. But I think that my favorite allegation against me by these eight Capitol Police officers and their Soros-funded nonprofit law firm was that I violently breached barricaded areas of the Capitol grounds and the Capitol building and attacked the police officers guarding the Capitol, including the plaintiffs. So here's a fun fact. In this case, we actually entered discovery. And through the course of discovery, we asked the plaintiffs to identify exactly where they were throughout the day, their exact locations. And as it turned out, none of them were working on the side of the Capitol where I was. One of them was in Maryland at the time that I was at the Capitol. Nonetheless, I was being accused of violating these officers' civil rights, and I was also being accused of assault and battery against them. Even though, after being investigated by the FBI, the DOJ, and the January 6th committee for an entire year, I was never accused of any violent crimes and never accused of any assault and battery whatsoever in my criminal proceedings. Let's soak that in for a second. 
the police officers who sued Brandon Straka alleged that he violently assaulted them in a number of different ways weren't there. They weren't working on the site of the Capitol on that day. One of them was at his home in Annapolis, Maryland, when the entire event happened. Yet he was he joined the lawsuit with the other seven officers as plaintiffs suing Brandon Straka for violating his civil rights as a minority in a white supremacist attack in violation of a KKK law. He wasn't even in D.C. The other seven were not even working the Capitol. And yet they actually brought this suit, saying that he was assaulted, and or he assaulted them. Oh, by the way, Brandon Straka, of, of all of the things that he faced on January 6th, was not charged, as he just said, with any violent crimes. One would think that if he violently assaulted these these police officers, he would have been charged with violent assault. There are people who were there who did nothing who have been charged with heavy uh, crimes. But he was not charged with violent assault or anything else, and these officers were not present. Yet this case made its way through to a judge and... Main reason why? Because I didn't commit any. Nor did I commit any violence of any kind, any vandalism, any theft, any destruction, and I did not enter the Capitol building. But more than two years later, after I was served in this civil lawsuit, and $150,000 later defending myself, I have come out victorious in this case. All counts against me have been dismissed, every single one. The plaintiffs, a.k.a. their lawyers, were given the option to refile two counts against me in district court, to which my attorney responded to them, Counsel, I write in hopes that we can conclusively end your client's misguided inquisition against Brandon Strzok. I appreciate the court's timing of the jurisdiction ruling. Before the ruling, Mr. Strzok produced all relevant documents to you. Those documents, along with the recent release of myriad video files from the Oath Keepers trial, show that even in the most creative legal fantasy, there is no causation between Mr. Strzok's presence, and that's all it was, presence, on the Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021, and your client's injuries, whatever they might be. If you file more lies against Mr. Strzok, for example, that he directed anybody to do anything tortious that day, we'll seek sanctions. We already have a strong case for some of Mr. Strzok's legal fees. You presented a conspiracy theory based solely on Mr. Strzok's public speeches and should have known and advised your clients that such does not a conspiracy make, whether under the Civil Rights Act or basic tort law. These lying, unethical, race-baiting scumbags got back to us with a letter signed by all of the Soros-funded attorneys and the Capitol Police Officer plaintiffs stating, this case is over. Chalk up a win for the good guys. Let's never forget who these people are. So I'm going to stop it there to point out two things. Number one, it is good. It is a good end to a terrible situation. And that that is something I'm very happy about. It's good news that somebody who has been persecuted by the same individuals, and, and I take no great joy in the story at all because I am very, very pro-police. 
Um, it, it, given the you know, in any instance in which a benefit of the doubt is to be applied in a in a certain situation involving police and allegations against them, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to the badge wearers who put their lives on the line. But in what happened on January 6th, they have surrendered the benefit of that doubt. And when these individuals who weren't even present and didn't encounter Brandon Strzok at the entirety of the January 6, 2021 events, for them to sue him to try to drag another one down is reprehensible. I don't like this at all. I like the outcome. But then point, point number two was it's, it cost this man a hundred and, uh, what do you say? $150,000 in legal fees to defend himself over the course of the last two and a half years in this horrifically ridiculous trial. I don't know how he can afford that. I know I couldn't afford that, and I don't know too many people who could afford that, but this is what happens. If you can afford to fight for justice, maybe you'll have a shot at it, but most people simply cannot. But that gives you an idea of what we are up against. We are up against an absolutely corrupt government that is influenced by some of the most corrupt donors and funders uh, in in the world, including, yes, that George Soros-funded law firm, Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. They brought this action against an innocent man and tried to destroy his life. They will destroy all of our lives if we give them the opportunity to. But congratulations to Brandon Strzok. He was successful in defeating this machine. And let's just pray for the J6 defendants, especially those still being held in prisons without trial in violation of their due process rights. Let's hope they are successful as well. All right, so it's 927, a ton of news to get to. I welcome your calls at 21. Thank you for finally noticing. America, from its woke slumber, always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. 936 on this Friday, a free-for-all. And you know what else it is today? Once again, Seth Williams, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you accountable for this. Yeah, a little late now. A little late now. If I've got to call you out on it and you didn't remind me, then it doesn't count. Uh, so you get no credit for that reminder. But, yeah, it's a fist bump Friday. Fist bump Friday, especially at the Christmas season. I certainly encourage everyone to uh, make sure you put the knuckles up to anybody that you see today. Tell them it's fist bump Friday. Make everybody touch knuckles. Everybody is willing to do that. I still have a perfect record. Never in the last six weeks of Fridays now in which I do fist bump Friday to strangers in public spaces has anybody not put their knuckles back to me. Uh, it's a great way to just kind of establish a little bit of camaraderie in what is otherwise a very, very divided and uh, dangerous place right now, which is our country. 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. There's a new story. Uh, NBC's Dr. Vin Gupta is among those who is trying to warn everybody about the rise of COVID again. As a matter of fact, uh, they're, they're kind of tying COVID in with RSV now and saying that there's a steady uptick of COVID and RSV and flu, and so don't forget to get your vaccines. And I just, uh, I'm watching this, I'm thinking we're three years on now from, you know, when the COVID pandemic began, and, you know, a year and a half or so from really the, I don't want to call it the end of it, because it depends on what you believe the start of it was and, and, and what it looks like, but obviously we are mostly looking at that through the rearview mirror now. But I also know that just a month and a half ago, the FDA granted a new F, uh, new EAU, or EUA, beg your pardon, which is the emergency use authorization for the new uh, COVID uh, uh, vaccine, or I call them profit shots, and I call them poison darts, everything but a vaccine, because they don't vaccinate you. They don't inoculate you against anything. But 
Uh, but the latest boosters have been have been put out there and been have been given a, a new EUA so that you can take these things. I bring that up because I had a conversation earlier this week. Where actually, technically, it was at the end of last week. It was a week ago today, in fact, with uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who is a cardiologist and an epidemiologist and a COVID researcher. And it aired today. It airs today. It aired this morning at 6 a.m. on, uh, on uh, Strictly Speaking. And it um, uh, it uh, will air this afternoon at about 4 p.m. on Strictly Speaking, which you can watch on Roku channels, uh, Channel 529, uh, TCL TV Plus, uh, also on Plex TV, if you will get any of those uh, channels on your smart TV, or if you have a Roku device uh, on the apps, and then on our own uh True Blue app, which is uh, watchtrueblue.com. You can just go there. And this interview, in this interview, I should say, we covered some extraordinarily important ground, including questions as to whether or not Operation Warp Speed should ever have happened. It's a legitimate question. It's an important question because Operation Warp Speed has done perhaps more damage to more people than any other medical intervention by the government in history. You mentioned you're an independent. I'm not going to ask you to be political when I ask this question, but was Operation Warp Speed a mistake? Should it have not been done? Yeah, it it was a giant mistake. Uh, You know, if you look at the organization of Operation Warp Speed, it was put in place years before the Trump administration. The Trump administration really had nothing to do with it. Uh, the, uh, The DARPA, the research arm of the military, they had announced the ADEPT P3 program in 2012, saying that they were going to end pandemics in 60 days with messenger RNA vaccines. 2012, still on their website. You know, anybody in the Trump administration could have just, you know, did a little quick check on their website, and they would have known that, you know, our Department of Defense was planning to use messenger RNA since 2012. I mean, it shows you the naivety of people in in power and administration, so they were just really, looking for an excuse to use it. They were looking for the right time to, yeah, to, to release. It was this. all in place, but the fact that the administration, you know, if I was called in on the White House task force, the first thing I'd say is, "Listen, we've been ready for this for years, and you can go to the website and see the Adept P three program, which lays out exactly what, what's happening." It's still today on their website, the fact that no one in the administration even did that. Or if they did it, they intentionally deceived the public and said, wow, you know, we, 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 we started from scratch and we did this within a few months. It's just ridiculous. This stuff is just available on the website, for crying out loud. This was all done ahead of time. You know, the fact that, you know, the government, we have two government administrations that, in a sense, never were honest with Americans. It's, it's really shameful. This stuff is so readily available to see. Ralph Barrett. At the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, publishes two papers, one in 2015 and one in 2016, Nature of Medicine, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and they say, we have created the SARS-CoV-2 virus. They created it. They called it the Wuhan Institute of Virology 1 virus. It's an engineered virus, U.S. engineering, funded by the National Institutes of Health, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in a consortium. The Chinese do the work in Wuhan Institute of Virology. It's all laid out there. That is just one small clip I want you to hear. And I'm going to give you another one now of of Dr. McCullough telling the truth about what we have been lied to for the last three years. Number one, there is evidence that this was indeed created through that Wuhan Institute. 
paid for and funded by the National Institute of Health, thus Dr. Anthony Fauci. It was lab-created, and as he just pointed out, the Operation Warp Speed that led to the uh, release of uh, the EUA, the emergency use authorization by the FDA to get these shots into all of our arms, um, that technology wasn't developed just in the eight or nine months after COVID was, was first diagnosed. It wasn't. It was sitting there, as you just heard him say, since 2012. Since 2012, that technology, and I've interviewed Dr. Robert Malone, who was one of the patent holders on the RNA technology that led to this, and he acknowledged the same. People need to hear these siren calls. We were lied to by our government. We were lied to about the creation of those. They had been made and created, and they've been waiting for a reason to stick them in the arms of millions and millions of people. That's just a fact. And all they needed was the reason. So they created the reason. The reason, they created it in a lab. They created the coronavirus and then watched it, quote, unquote, leak. Oh, it looks like we're going to have to use this now. Billions upon billions of dollars are made by the pharmaceutical companies that were contracted to produce these RNA, quote, unquote, vaccines. And the American people were guinea pigged. The entire, not just the American people, the world population essentially was put into a Petri dish. And what Dr. McCullough told me earlier in that conversation, which you will hear if you watch the entire interview, is that more people have been killed by the shots than have been killed by COVID. I asked him that very early in the conversation, which again, I don't want to give too much of this away because I want you to watch the whole interview on Strictly Speaking. But I asked him directly, how can you claim that? Because the world death toll, according to those who track it, for what it's worth, of of people who died from COVID was around 6.9 million people. Are you really saying that more than 6.9 million people died from the COVID shots? And Dr. McCullough said, no, I'm not saying more than 6.9 million people died from the COVID shots. I'm saying 6.9 million people did not die from COVID. Maybe 10%, maybe 10% of the deaths that have been attributed to COVID were from people who died from COVID, where their uh, breathing and respiratory system was compromised to the point where they died because of COVID. The other 90% worldwide died with COVID. And then he went on to explain, which again, he does in much better detail, and you should watch the full interview um, on Strictly Speaking, but went on in great detail to talk about the number of cases of people dying right now this year. Right now. They're not even sick with COVID, but they had COVID a year ago. Or two years ago. And because the COVID spike proteins will not leave the body, which is something else he is speaking out on right now, there is no evidence of any kind that's, that shows that the, uh, the spike proteins put in by the shots ever leave the body and that COVID uh, 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 remnants can be found if you cycle up the cycle threshold high enough to try to detect COVID so you can detect it from 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 years ago that yes COVID was present in this person so when COVID is present in this person even from being sick years ago and now they die of uh, whatever 
They could die of heart disease. It doesn't matter. They're going to run the COVID test. They're going to swab, and they're going to say, oh, I detect COVID, so this is a COVID death. In reality, it was a heart uh, attack. In other cases, it's a traffic accident. In other cases, it's any number of things, but then they always check with a high cycle threshold for COVID from a previous infection, and then they say, oh, COVID death. That's how they got the 6.9 million number. It's crap. It's a joke. But we've been lied to. We have been lied to by our government. And this is something that uh, uh, Peter McCullough expressed to me very clearly on uh, on this program. Again, that airs today on Strictly Speaking. It already aired this morning. If you got up early and saw it, good on you. If you haven't yet, like I said, watch it this afternoon around 4 p.m. on uh, Strictly Speaking on the True Blue Channel, which is on uh, Roku and, and Plex and TCL Television, as well as the apps and as well as TrueBlue.com. Or watch TrueBlue.com, rather. But uh, listen to this. Um you mentioned you're an independent. I'm not going to ask you to be political when I ask this question, but was Operation Warp Speed a mistake? Wait a minute. That's the same one that we just we just played. My apologies. Let me pull this one, uh, pull up the correct one now. You mentioned you're an independent. I'm not going to ask Still you. not there. I've got both of these here. I've got two clips I wanted to play for you, and apparently they are both loading up on the same the same clip. Let me take a time out here so I can get the right one to you. So it's 216-901-0945. And Buick Medina Auto Mall, the number one Buick GMC dealer in Ohio. Medina Auto Mall. Nobody will beat a Medina number one price. Nobody. All right, 951, I want to continue and give you a little bit more of this because it's extraordinarily important. And uh, Seth just reminded me to let you know when I tell you to watch True Blue, it's no ease. Just to, you know, drop the ease on True and Blue. It's just watch T-R-U-B-L-U, watch True Blue. Uh, it is, um, uh, like I said, this is a very eye-opening conversation. I think all of these shows that we do have been very eye-opening and very fascinating, but this one is particularly important now, again, because they are still pushing the vax. They're still pushing the COVID uh, shots, the profit shots, the poison darts, whatever it is you want to call them, and they have known the dangers and the side effects of these shots from the beginning. This is important. Did they know, did doctors Fauci and Burks and the others that were on the, the task force, did they know about the injuries that were going to result? There's a slide uh, from an FDA meeting, uh, October 22nd, 2020. Uh, this, is, this is before the vaccines are released. About two months before. Yeah. It says on the slide, here are the expected side effects. And it lists myocarditis, Guillain-Barre, blood clots. This slide is readily available, you know, it, you know, in its source. Our government knew. And it looks like we had a little bit of, bit of a glitch here. Hold on. Let's do it again. Government knew. The culpable people are... You know, who who forced these shots? You know, why did big companies force the shots? Why did health systems, when they were told by our agencies that they cause problems? Everyone's going to point fingers at each other. So they knew about the myocarditis and and, and all the, the other things, yet they ran that safe and effective campaign and did not tell anybody about those things. That means they did not give the public informed consent uh, before they before they got these shots. The immunity came up in this part of the Vivek Ramaswamy answer to Megyn Kelly at this Republican uh, presidential debate. And he, he pointed out 1986 under Reagan, 
the vaccine manufacturers are given broad protection against liability. What was shocking is there must be an advanced feed and there must have been government agencies or pharmaceutical companies or somebody on the advanced feed. And as soon as he started to mention this, they cut out the feed from News Nation for eight minutes. And so the public does not get to hear Ramaswamy's answer on, you know, Ramaswamy said he'd reverse vaccine, uh, he'd reverse that legislation. And later on, Ramaswamy became aware of it because now it's out on the internet, it's on my Twitter feed, where you can see what he said. <coughs> the reason why this is important, it's prima facie evidence that somebody is on the live feeds of major events like a, a town hall or presidential debate filtering what Americans hear. That there is so much there to to uh, to pay attention to. Number one, the last part. <laughs> that, that live feed was cut for eight minutes. Exactly what he said. That live feed was cut for eight minutes uh, so that people could not hear the discussion of exactly that. Secondly, that slide, after I did the interview <clears throat> with uh, Dr. McCullough uh, last Friday, which is airing today, um, he went ahead and, and posted that slide on his Twitter feed in response to that, um, which I was so glad to see that he did. He went ahead and posted that um, uh, that response, uh, or excuse me, that slide, so that people could see what I had not known about, that this slide he said existed before the release of the vaccine. The vaccine was released in December of 2020. In October of 2020, which is the date of this slide, it listed all of the potential and known side effects of the shots, including all of the things that he just said, Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, uh, Bell's palsy, uh, uh, blood clots, strokes, uh, heart inflammation, that's you know myocarditis, pericarditis, all of these things were known ahead of time. I'm looking at the slide right now. And thank you to Peter McCullough, who actually gave me credit uh, for for bringing the fact that there there was no informed consent here on his on his tweet, and I appreciate that very much. He he went ahead and sent the slide out on his Twitter feed for everybody again. It's CBER plans for monitoring COVID nineteen vaccine safety and effectiveness. FDA safety surveillance of COVID nineteen vaccines draft working list of possible adverse event outcomes. Guillain-Barre acute dissemination encephalomyelitis. Transverse myelitis, encephalitis, convulsion, seizure, strokes, narcolepsy, cat- cataplexy, uh, anaphylaxis, acute myocardial infection, myocarditis and pericarditis. It, the, the list is extraordinary. And included among this list, one word, deaths. So they had all of this. It's dated October 22, 2020. The FDA had this list. In October of 2020, two months before the vaccines were, were, were released, and what did the vaccine campaign ads say? Nothing except safe and effective. It didn't say safe and effective, but they might kill you. Safe and effective, but it might cause a stroke. Safe and effective, but it might cause heart inflammation, heart attack. Autoimmune disease, Kawasaki disease, convulsions, and on and on on down this list. They didn't tell anybody any of that. And if you tried to tell anybody that, they shut you down on social media. If you tried to share anything you knew or any concerns that you had or maybe any, any of the symptoms you actually experienced, 
they shut you down. So this was a concerted governmental effort to jam all of these shots in all of these arms, telling you that there are no health risks, they're safe, and that they work 100%, that they will stop COVID in its tracks. So they're effective, safe and effective, is all we were told. You were lied to, I was lied to, Dr. Peter McCullough proved it and has the receipts, the physical slides that he has posted online. Again, he credited me with with bringing this out on Strictly Speaking. Look at it. It's on my Twitter feed right now. It's on Dr. Peter McCullough's Twitter, uh, Twitter feed. It is everywhere. And know that we were lied to. And so as they continue to tell you, bring in this full circle, uh, uh, right now you've got all of these TV doctors and others saying, there's a rise in COVID cases now along with RSV. Make sure you get your COVID shot, your booster. It's time. Do run from that. Run away from that screaming as if your life depends upon it, because guess what? It might. That full interview with Dr. McCullough, which is very eye-opening, is again airing today. It's on demand at WatchTrueBlue.com with no ease. Watch TRUBLU.com, and it's on, like I said, at about 4 o'clock or so today. The clock varies. It's not like network TV where it's on the top of the hour and a half of the, and the bottom half hour, so it may start a few minutes before 4 or after 4 or whatever. But look for it at uh, Roku on the Roku channel, channel 529, Plex TV, and on TCL TV+. Plus. All right, we're going to take a time out here. we got a top of the hour break coming up. If I'm sorry if I didn't get to your calls if you're on hold. I just wanted to get all that information there. On the other side, though, we're going to talk to Jamie Ricker's Wars. To start listening now... Go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search Key Battles of American History on your favorite podcasting platform. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Hour number two is underway. It's seven minutes past 10 o'clock on this Friday. A free-for-all Friday, yes, but a fist-bump Friday as well. Make sure you give knuckles to anybody that you see. It's a good way to spread Christmas cheer, and we're going to do this all throughout the year. I said it before, and if you haven't heard it, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Taco Tuesday. I want it to be replaced with Fist Bump Friday. Put your hand out, try to shake the hand of every stranger you see, and that's not going to work. People are going to look at you and say, what are you, freak? Put your knuckles up and say, hey, it's Fist Bump Friday. I guarantee you they'll tap back. And what better way to uh, to uh, try to get over the division <laughs> than to maybe express a little bit of friendliness to one another. So Fist Bump Friday for all this 22nd morning of the 12th month year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, we'll get back to some calls and some uh, conversation on the uh, very important issues that we just discussed with respect to COVID and shots. But this story is interesting. I don't often have a lot of guests on who would describe themselves as being to the political left of Bernie Sanders. Uh, the conversations don't always go well. Uh, we try to make them go well. We'll get callers who may be that way, even if they don't describe themselves as such, but they may have those views. We try to make them as civil as possible. But um, I'm about to have a guest on who is that, who describes herself as being to the left of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is an avowed socialist. So you're probably thinking this is going to be a battle royal. Well, it's not, because we are like-minded on something very, very important, and that is trying to protect confused young kids who have been influenced 
and whose minds have been warped oftentimes by the social contagion known as transgender ideology by some, child groom, victims of child grooming and adolescent uh, uh, misdirection and so forth. It's happening on TikTok. It's happening on Instagram. It's happening, sadly, in too many schools and even in some families where parents looking for clout are really, really not joking um, uh, you know, enjoying sitting at lunch with their friends and saying, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got three kids. Two of them are non-binary and one of them is trans. And it's like, no, you don't. You can't. It is a statistical impossibility because the number of people who have actual diagnosed gender dysphoria, which is a psychological condition, is, is so minute. It is impossible. You have encouraged your kids to identify as something else. That's the reality of the social contagion that is going on. And uh, this has become evident to a lot of people, including our guest. Jamie Reed describes herself as a 42-year-old St. Louis native and a queer woman uh, and who is, again, politically to the left of Bernie Sanders. She had been working for a transgender clinic, the Washington University Transgender Center at the St. Louis Children's Hospital. She started there in 2018. She left there last year in 2022, and now she's literally blowing the whistle on what goes on at these clinics. So let's welcome Jamie Reed to our program. Jamie, thank you so very much for joining us here in Cleveland. It's good to have you. How are you this morning? I'm doing so, so good, and your introduction is amazing. I find myself wanting to fist bump in the air. So many agreements, yes. Thank you for that. I'm glad we've got the virtual fist bump going on. That's fantastic. Jamie, I'm having a little hard time hearing you. Are you on a regular phone or are you on a speaker by chance or a Bluetooth? Let me let me get you regular phone. Here we go. So much better. Thank you. Yeah, it was going to be tough. It was a little echoey, so I couldn't quite hear exactly what you said about the fist bumps. But thank you, uh, and I appreciate that very much. So, so Jamie... Um, this isn't going to be a political discussion, so you have no concerns about that. The fact that you, I would love to have you on someday if you want to talk politics. We'll talk, I'll talk about it from my, you know, my Reagan conservatism, and you can talk about it from your Bernie socialism, and, and we'll have a great debate. But we are, we are not debating here. I want to tell your story, and I want to actually help you amplify the story that you are already telling about your experiences. So, so I really appreciate you doing this. Tell me, first of all, when you got to that transgender center in St. Louis in 2018, what was your role? What, what, was you, what, what, did you, what, did you, what was your role, and what did you think you were signing up for at this place? So I was the medical case manager in the center. We had a team of about eight individuals. I probably was one of two managers working with trans kids in the entire state of Missouri. I was basically fulfilling the role that a social worker would, but I have a master's of science in clinical research. So I was also managing our data sets and managing some of our later clinical research that we are attempting to do also. Okay. Um, so give, give me a, a sense of what that means to be a case manager. Are, what, are you counseling? Are you intaking uh, potential patients? Or what, what exactly do you, were your responsibilities? Yeah, so I actually did the intake assessment for every patient that came into our center from 2018 on. It would be a initial intake with parents. It would take anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour, but I would assess and make recommendations and then triage to which providers we were going to schedule with. I okay. did see a lot of patients directly in the center, and I did a lot of 
counseling, care around suicidal ideations. I knew how to get someone's name legally changed and gender marker. So I was doing a lot of the resourcing and referring for follow-up care needs also. Okay. So parents are bringing these kids in, right? Uh, did they, Was that a requirement? Were, were kids who were under 18 allowed to come in and seek uh, assistance on their own? They were not supposed to, no. So if you were under the age of 18, you needed to come in with at least one parent or legal guardian, but some of the problems I started seeing is that we were excluding the other parent often. And what do you mean by a problem? Why was that a problem? So we would have families who one parent wanted to give their kids puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones, and the other parent did not want to do that and instead wanted their child to have more therapy. And we were taking sides, and we were um, we were siding with the parent who wanted to medically transition their kids. Sometimes all the way to the extent where our doctors were going into court, and they were arguing on behalf of the parent who wanted to medicalize their kid, and helping parents get full legal custody. That is terrifying. Uh, to be quite honest, uh, and I have heard of cases like that. Some of them have made the news. Maybe there have been lawsuits filed, and that's why it's become news. Um, and and there are parents who are being denied a right to have a role in their kid's life because the belief is, at least according to the medical professionals, and I use that term in air quotes because I do not believe some of these people are medical professionals. I think these people are profit-driven. But in their, in their opinion, it, it is gender-affirming and life-saving to go on with the, you know, with the transitioning. And the parent that is trying to stop that from happening is actually going to do harm to their child. Is that the working premise of these clinics and of these doctors? What's interesting is I wouldn't even characterize some of these other parents as wanting to stop it. Oftentimes, it was a dad who just wanted more mental health care and more time. So it was oftentimes a parent who would say, hey, my kid has only been saying this for like six months. Can we give it a year? Can we get them to a psychologist who's kind of neutral on this and see if we can support their mental health and give it more time. It was rarely another parent who was just blatantly saying, no, I'm completely opposed. They just wanted more time and better mental health care. And that was what was becoming such a tragedy to me is we were locking these parents out. Okay. So, and thank you for that clarification. Uh, and and I, I can understand that. I can say, I think there are a little bit of both. I think, or not both. I think those are two of many reactions that parents can have to these kinds of things. And some would say, no, you're not. You are being, you're confused right now and you're taking in a lot of bad information. No, uh, we're not doing it. Others saying, hey, let's explore this a little bit more carefully with a, you know, with some psychological counseling and so forth. Um, what kind of ages are we talking about here that you saw on average? I think our youngest was five. Five? Five. A parent or parents brought a five-year-old in to say, let's explore uh, gender transition. Because we think of these things as being adolescents. We think about it being preteen or maybe teens, of course. Um, But five. Now, that, that is an astounding thing. So I'm assuming, considering the fact that you left and you are now, quote, unquote, blowing the whistle on some of the things that are going on at these clinics, there came a point where you were in stark disagreement with um, 
the the I don't know the other doctors or the other people at the clinic who who were not taking up for or listening to the parent um, who was saying, "Hey, let's pump the brakes here a little bit. Let's get some let's get some psychological intervention and mental health going on here." Did you speak out against or in in, in favor of that for for these particular parents? Absolutely, I was advocating not just for parents but also. I feel like I was advocating for actually following a strict concept of the guidelines. I think part of where so many of these centers have gone completely off the rails is that they are interpreting and and saying that these guidelines basically say if, if a kid wants these treatments, then at least one parent is willing to say yes. They are, they're just willing to prescribe even outside of, you know, I think there's almost this myth out there in the United States that everybody's gone through these really in-depth, long-term assessments. And we were medicalizing kids who had seen a therapist once for one visit. And you can't even really get a good sense of somebody's background or functioning in one visit. Yet these therapists were saying, yep, they're good to go because of the kids who came in and said, I'm trans. There's no exploration happening. It is merely a rubber stamp. Yep, here you go. So what did they say to you when you would raise these concerns? Did they just dismiss you and, you know, know your role, go stay in your lane over there, we'll handle this? How did those go? Um, you know, I actually wasn't alone. Um, there were a few others on case-by-case basis who would absolutely agree with my assessment. But one of the most chilling things was I said to one of the doctors, I believe that we are hurting, we are harming patients. And the response was, I know, but I don't know what you think I can do about it. I thought the role of a doctor was to do no harm to a patient, to find solutions for patients' ailments, whatever they may be, physical or mental and psychological, to find uh, solutions that do not harm them. Isn't that kind of the nature of medicine? I know you're not a doctor, but isn't that kind of the nature? Neither am I, but I know that much. This is this is an area of air quote medicine that has gone completely off the rails because that physician could see no way of, there was, there was no way to say no to anyone. If a patient came in and wanted these treatments and the parent said yes, and at least the therapist said, oh, I saw you once, you're good to go. We said yes to everyone. And the thing that the physicians could not figure out is how to say no. And that is not how medicine is supposed to work. Did, no it, appear, did it appear, Jamie, that any of them wanted to? They were really literally, you know, like maybe in some agreement with you and wanted to say no, but the, the policies were the policies, and so they just kind of had to keep on rubber stamping all of these uh, these medications? I don't even know if it's the policies. It's this ideological capture of this idea that these kids are just who they say they are and that we need to just affirm them or else. And that is putting the decision-making power of a differential diagnosis in the hands of a child. And the other thing is kids don't do well with that kind of of position. Kids need us as adults. Their mental health is better when we give them some breaks, when we say, hey, no, you do actually need to go to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, 
the patients would have done better if we were not putting these huge decisions about the rest of their lives in their hands. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the reasons why um, minors are minors, um, and they can't make life-altering decisions without the approval of their parents. Why they can't get tattoos until they're 18, it's why they can't smoke, it's why they can't drink, it's why they can't do a whole lot of things. Sign a contract, a legally binding contract under the age of 18, because it is believed um, that their brains are not formative, uh, formative enough at that age to make sound decisions that should be legally binding. And yet we're letting them make these decisions and and parents are are encouraging of it in many ways um let me ask you this did you ever encounter any parents who were bringing their kids but who were not supportive of this but they wanted to learn more and say you know my daughter thinks that she wants to be a boy or my son thinks that he wants to be a girl we're not for this um can you explain this to, to them did any of them come in hesitantly but just to try to convince their kids that no this isn't the way to go we had a few, but one of the things that I heard feedback from some of those parents mm-hmm. was that they would come in and then they would later say, I feel like you were pushing an agenda on us because we were, some of the doctors were directly saying to parents in front of their children, if you do not give this to your child, your child will commit suicide. We've heard that. We've heard that line, right? They say, would you rather have a, a living dead. daughter, to, exactly. uh, you know, about their boy or a dead son? Um, and that is that is just complete manipulation. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in my view, and again, not being a doctor, uh, that's malpractice. Um, you're taking confused and depressed and anxious kids. You wrote this. I'm going to read this from your uh, your very important article here. The girls who came to us had many comorbidities, depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, obesity. Many were diagnosed with autism or had autism-like symptoms. And a report last year on a British pediatric transgender center found that about a third of the patients referred there were on the autism spectrum. We are talking about severe mental health issues, and this clinic was pushing as a, as a remedy for their mental health issues body disfigurement. Is that, is that a fair summary? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so again, and I, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying this, but when you have all of those things that you listed that these patients came in with depression, anxiety, ADHD, eating disorders, et cetera, how is it that you as an intake person and, and a case manager and, and the doctor is looking at this and saying, you have psychological conditions that need to be dealt with before you can come back here and talk to us about, about physical remedies like, you know, chemical castration, puberty blockers, and so forth. How did they not refer them to mental health first and foremost? So I think the phrase that we saw come out of England is diagnostic overshadowing. So what is happening in these hospitals is if a kid has all of those other things but says that they are trans, it's almost like all of the other medical interventions stop and that becomes the sole pathway. 
You write, Jamie Reed, if you just turn on the radio, Jamie Reed is our guest. Jamie Reed is a former case manager and um, um, intake specialist at a transgender center in St. Louis. She is now blowing the whistle on what that transgender center does and did and uh, probably what the other ones are doing as well is they urge and encourage these kids as young as possible to start the transition process if they come in saying that they're trans. So, so Jamie, you wrote... Uh, among many other very important parts about this, that, quote, the doctors privately recognize these false self-diagnoses as a manifestation of social contagion. They even acknowledge that suicide has an element of social contagion. But when I, meaning you, said the clusters of girls streaming into our service looked as if their gender issues might be a manifestation of social contagion, the doctor said gender identity reflected something innate. So they privately recognize that this is... This is social. This is not an actual um, uh, gender dysphoric situation, but these kids were all just being basically peer pressured by their social circles, um, and yet they, they, they privately did that, but publicly when it came time to make decisions, they said, yeah, let's go. Absolutely. And I will say, because I do want to speak to your listeners in Ohio, mm-hmm. I do believe that kind of care that I saw in the center in St. Louis is the kind of care that's being practiced throughout the United States. And one of the ways that I know that is that almost all of these doctors do talk to each other. There is a listserv, an email listserv, that if you are a practitioner of pediatric gender medicine in the U.S., almost every single um, center is on that listserv. And from what I know of how they talk on that listserv, this is the way that is almost universally the way things are going. So I I hope that, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say I believe every word of that, and I'm very, very concerned about Ohio. I don't know if you're very familiar at all with uh, uh, last month we had an election uh, on a constitutional amendment. It was it was issue one. It was ostensibly an abortion on demand uh, uh, constitutional amendment, but they worded the language of the amendment very, very loosely and very vaguely uh, and said that every individual, not adult, every individual, which now encompasses children, has the right to make their own reproductive health decisions. Reproductive health decisions can be, of course, uh, abor- abortion, you know, uh, questionable. But reproductive health decisions can also apply to chemical castration and cross-sex hormones that sterilize and make one infertile. So we're very concerned here, Jamie, that there are going to be a whole lot of young people whose parents are cut out of the loop because it says specifically individual without being age restrictive to 18 and over that they can make their own reproductive decisions and that, and that it would include sterilizing themselves. Isn't that always why the devil is in the details? You really need to understand exactly what some of these bills and some of these guidelines say. Well, you're exactly right. It's one of the things those of us who oppose that amendment, unfortunately, it passed by a wide margin. And now we're very concerned about what's going to happen with a lot of these kids and parents who are not going to be allowed to stop them as long as they can find uh, the uh, kids can find money or clinics willing to provide it for them uh, affordably. uh, The parents aren't going to have a say. So we're alarmed about that. I want to I want to bring up. Oh, wow. It's 1027 already. I, this blew me away. I'm sorry. Our conversation is barely getting started. Can you can you stick around for another segment? Absolutely. Okay, because there's so much more to cover here. It's very important in the information you're providing. The answer. Giving you reason in the age of unreason.
Always Right Radio with Bob France and the answer. All right, let's continue now at 1035 with our guest, Jamie Reed. Uh, Jamie Reed, if you just turned on the radio and uh, maybe you missed the uh, last half hour, that's that's bad on you. Uh, it's good conversation. It's important conversation. Jamie is a St. Louis native who was working at a transgender center there from 2018 to 2022. She was working as an intake specialist and as a case manager, and she uh, thought she was helping kids. She thought she was helping treat kids with gender dysphoria which might mean turning them away from things like transitioning. She found out over the course of her time there that the intent was to transition virtually all of them and as young as possible. She is now blowing the whistle on them, and she continues with us on AM 1420, The Answer. So, Jamie, I want to mention your personal life just for a moment, only because you do in your your essay or your article or whatever we're calling this very important uh, whistleblowing screed that you wrote. Um, you are a queer woman, and you are married to a trans man, which if I understand my language right, that means this is a biological female who identifies as a male, correct? Correct. Okay. So clear, you, clearly you're not somebody that would be called transphobic. People like me, I'm called transphobic all the time because I do not like what they are doing to these kids, particularly the social contagion aspect of this, and the doctors and the clinicians and the the others who are who are pushing this that you are blowing the whistle on. But you have a different perspective. You're not certainly not a transphobe. You are married to someone who is a trans person. So how do you how do you square that? Um, trying to tell parents, hey, this is. This is probably not a good thing for you to be doing with your young kids when I don't know what your your uh, uh, your spouse's uh, uh, situation was in terms of when uh, that person transitioned. But but how do you how do you balance that with your personal life and your your professional obligations here as you as you see them? So first, I want your listeners to know there are so many adult LGBT people who absolutely do not agree with medically transitioning kids. I work every day with a huge number of adults who transitioned as adults who absolutely do not believe kids should be medically transitioning. Just to put that out there. That's good. Um, I know there's a whole there's a whole organization. I apologize for interrupting your answer, but there's a group called Gays Against Groomers that I've had on the air. The uh, one of the leaders or president or chair or whatever it is um, that are very very adamant about this. They don't want kids being groomed into this uh, you know into this trans lifestyle, if you will, particularly if they don't suffer from actual gender dysphoria, but they're just confused kids succumbing to a lot of pressure from a lot of different spaces. In other words, in the grooming world. So I know there are a lot of people in the LGBTQ community, as it were, uh, that that absolutely oppose this. So I'm I'm glad to hear you say that, but please continue. I think part of why it's easy for me to square this is that the science, the medical evidence does not support the continuing use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and surgery in children. If the science supported this, we would see robust long-term studies that showed the clear benefit and the benefit that outweighed the risk. These kids are going to be, especially the young boys who are put on puberty blockers, they are going to be sterilized for life, and they're also going to have their sexual function 
basically taken away for life too. And the benefits to that just simply do not outweigh what we're doing to kids. And the original place that this entire idea came from, from the Netherlands, is rethinking this as well as so many European nations. The evidence just isn't there. Why do you think that is? What makes the United States different? And that may be a big sociological question there, but you're right. Um, in the Netherlands and in you know a lot of, of Western Europe in particular, um, they are pulling way back from this massive, hey, let's be quick to trans uh, kids or, or you know, to diagnose people who are not suffering from gender dysphoria with gender dysphoria. Um, why do you suppose that America were so far behind that? I think it probably comes down to two two reasons. One of those is something that we probably would clearly not agree on, but a lot of these places have socialized, nationalized medical systems where their medical care is provided in a way that it is paid for by the government, and the government requires that there is strong evidence that something has good potential to work in order for it to be paid for. And also, they collect a lot of data. They have data on all of their citizens who are using the National Health Services so they can look at long-term data and they can show, hey, this is not having good outcomes. Here in the U.S., we just have a way different system where you can get your health insurance directly from your employer. Your insurance you know, might or might not cover certain things. We don't have a robust national data that up so we can't look at every single kid that's been put on a puberty blocker. It's not captured in a national data set. So, you know, there is some reasons why countries who have systems like that go to show that it's not an effective good treatment. Canada is a little bit of a weird outlier right now. Um, They have embraced this fully. They do have more of a socialized medical system. Um, I think some of my friends who live in Canada just feel like they are, you know, very close to the U.S. on this and have a lot of ideological alignment in the U.S. Jamie, um, thank you for that. That's uh, that's as good of an explanation as I can expect because I can't quite put my finger on why we were doing it so differently. But the health care system is, uh, and health insurance system is certainly a big part of it. I get it. Um, let's talk about the dangers now and why you were spurred to action, to leave the clinic and to do what you're doing right now. You spend a great deal of time in this essay that you wrote talking about some of the side effects and talking about some of the after effects of those who went through with the blockers, then they went through with the cross-sex hormones, and then they went through with the actual surgeries, top and bottom or, 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 or either or. And you have some horrific stories here to tell. Can you go into some of what these... Um, uh, side effects and these after effects are? Yeah, these treatments are incredibly hard on the body and they have so many known long-term side effects, which is again why it has to be an adult who makes the decision. But if you're started on testosterone, you can pretty much guarantee long-term you're going to have problems with your heart health, cholesterol. Um, I don't know if I can say all these things on the air, but you will see significant vaginal atrophy, pain, um, sexual dysfunction, urinary problems. Um, Most people have to go on to have a hysterectomy if they're on testosterone for a long time. You know, things like male pattern baldness, um, 
problems with weight. You know, those are those are significant challenges. And then we just saw a number of young patients who were expressing regret and harm really quite quickly. One of the stories that just kind of broke my heart is we had a young person who had top surgery, so they had their breast surgically removed. Mm -hmm. And they called back within three months begging for the surgeons to put their breasts back on. And what I felt like was medical malfeasance was that the surgeons wouldn't even call her back. And when I went to leave the center, I found out she was now pregnant. And knowing that she had so much regret from that surgery, and now we had also taken away her her chance to maybe even breastfeed her own child. Um, those are the things that still haunt me and cause me a lot of um, pain to know that I was so complicit in that system. That is a tragic thing to hear, but um, not a surprising one. Um, how can it not be that way? We, we are seeing and hearing more people with the courage now who went through this mistake um, and, and are detransitioning or trying to detransition. But the reality is, Jamie, and, and you know this from your experiences here, there is no way to detransition. I mean, you can say, okay, I no longer want to be called she or her. I want to be called back to going, going back to he and him, and, and I can stop taking cross-sex hormones and other things. But the damage is done. The damage, when we say irreversible, we mean literally irreversible, right? You can't sew breasts back on. You can't take a, you know, a, 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 a vagio, is it vagioplasty is what they call it, or whatever, the creation of yeah. fake one, and, and, and reverse yeah. that and put your, your male genitalia back on. I mean, when we say irreversible, this is a lifetime decision, which is why it's so astounding i know that we're allowing kids to have any say whatsoever in such a life uh, you know forever decision yeah these are completely irreversible and some of the things that get kind of like oh you know it's not that big of a deal but when you think about for a young girl to have her voice drop and have the voice that everybody for the rest of her life if she gets on the phone is going to think they're talking to a man Mm -hmm. that's that has a lifetime impact that that person is going to have to find ways to get through. And I don't think those should be undervalued or diminished. Even some of the changes with testosterone really, really quickly through the vaginal area will be with that person for life. And I just, I think that we are doing a disservice to kids to allow these things to happen to their physical bodies when their physical bodies deserve to be intact when they're 40, 50, 60, and they deserve to have those rights to make those decisions for themselves. Jamie, um, in your essay, you include a few um, examples of messages that you got uh, from, and, and that the clinic and also correspondence between yourself and other members of the clinic. And there's one <clears throat> from June 9th of last year, 2022, um, in which a parent um, expresses some serious hostility toward the clinic for um, allowing what they themselves wanted to do with their kid because of the impact on the kid. Can you share that? I think you're probably talking about the mom who... Um, they it's had put rede- a it's obviously redacted. Yeah, it's redacted, so I don't know uh, the specific person, obviously. But yes, go ahead. So I've actually had uh, some really good follow-up contact with, with this parent. 
Um, so we put a puberty blocker in. She felt bullied from the beginning to, to consent, but you know, she was under the impression if she consented to this treatment, she would have the right as the parent to withdraw that consent later. And she went on to email us and she said, my child is a shell of their former self. And their child was now on about five psychotropic medications, psychiatric medications. And she was demanding as the mom that she wanted this blocker removed. Mm-hmm. And, and we did not do that. We did not remove the blocker. Um, I can... I can thankfully say now that the blocker has been removed and that her child is doing so much better. Um, she, she stays in contact with me. Um, she fought tooth and nail to get that to happen. And, and that, again, just went to show me that we were, we were outside of medical norms in our practice. If I'm a parent and I say, sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my kid try this medicine, I have the right to stop that. And you said when she tried to revoke her consent, they would not accept that at the beginning? Yeah, correct. We would not. Why? Why, why would the clinic say, I mean, if the, if the parent has to sign off on giving it, how child, can the parent not sign off on removing it? Because the child still wanted it in. Despite the parent's description of her problems, her her mental health, behavioral health, anxiety, and so on and so forth, being a shell of herself. So, so, so whatever that whatever the the child wants, the child gets. Um, except for the very beginning, the parent has to sign off on that. Does the parent know at the beginning that once you sign off and say we want to start oh. this, do, do, are they given informed consent you, that they no longer have it? A, go ahead. You just nailed it. I I sent an email while we were just debating this, and my email said, if this is the way that we're going to do this moving forward, you need to tell every single parent when they consent at the beginning, they they will no longer have the right to remove their consent. Because part of this came down to me also being a parent. I am a mom of five kids, and I take my responsibility as a parent really seriously, but also I... I think that my rights as a parent is really serious. And one of the things I know that is being talked about in Ohio right now is that this is a parental rights issue. Well, sure, on some level it is, but I think that parents everywhere on either side of the political divide need to know that we were also walking all over parents' rights. We thought we knew better, and these doctors feel like they are able to play God and that it's their decision and that's what goes. Well, if your doctors are telling parents that if you don't do this, your kid's going to kill himself, what parent? The parent has no rights then because the parents are literally being told by a medical professional they have to do this. Correct. That's that. That's an astounding uh, thing to think about. Um, Again, I don't want to cross any lines here or go out of bounds when I ask you, but again, given your personal situation, you have two children from a previous marriage or relationship, right? And yeah. then three, I think I read it, is three, three foster kids that you've adopted or are adopting? Yes. Okay. Um, given that and given your spouse, um, what, what do you do and how do you handle it if one or multiple of your kids come to you and say, uh, Mom, um, I want to I do the transition thing? What do you do? Um, none of my children have expressed anything like that. And one of the things when I was working in the center that I came to the realization of pretty quickly. And again, it wasn't just me. It was another coworker of mine. We both came to the realization and said, we would never bring our kids here. You wouldn't bring them there. 
Would you bring them would to? Not, a, would you bring them to a different clinic that maybe did things differently? Um, if my child expressed issues around their gender, one of the things I will say is that I do fully support the idea about gender nonconformity. I don't think if you're a girl, you have to like makeup and want to wear a dress and high heels. I don't even own any high heels. I think we should support kids being able to be kids. And part of that is exploring things like what clothes do you like to wear? How do you want your hair cut? I want to go back to this idea that we support kids thinking about things like, you're a girl. That means you can have any job you want. If you want to be a mom, you can be a mom. If you don't, you don't. And if you're a boy, you can have any job you want. Going back to this idea that um, gender has to be some locked in, you know, thing is just absurd. I don't even know how we got here. Part of what I saw wrong in these gender centers, too, is that they were basically, you know, if a, if a kid came in and liked you know, Barbies, and they were a boy, we were saying, you must be trans. That's absurd. Well, you know what's interesting about what you just said is that typically boys who express an interest in more feminine things, like dolls or makeup or whatever, they're assumed to be gay. Uh, and there is a high crossover um, between gay and and those who decide they're trans or those who maybe think they're trans or who get, you know, roped into, you know, gay kids and, and it can, just like straight kids can be roped into the social contagion. But but yeah. there there is a close correlation there. And again, you're 100 percent right. A boy can be a makeup artist and be straight as uh, as an arrow. And, uh, you know, and a girl can be a fighter pilot and it, and be as, yeah. as completely, you know, female and feminine as, as anything. Nobody is saying that gender. Gender roles have to be adhered to, but gender and sex, they are two different things. And you, you can you can have feminism, feminist or masculine characteristics. That doesn't change who you are, right? Right, absolutely. And some of the trans adults that I work with every day, they have always recognized biological sex. For them, their medical transition as adults was basically the last resort to deal with their long-term gender dysphoria. But they have never never denied the reality of biological sex and they've always recognized that this is something about their outward presentation to the world that makes them feel like they can fit in the way that they feel best but but no we we have completely turned so much of this upside down and on some level it's no wonder kids are confused because we're we're telling them these things. Oh, you can just change your sex. That's not even, no, that's not possible. So do the doctors that tell these parents who come into this clinic that you used to work for and to clinics like them here in Ohio and all around the country, which you were very specific about pointing out, when they tell them that if you don't do this, your kid is likely to, to try to commit suicide, do they also tell them that those who have transitioned um, uh, as early as they were allowed to transition, particularly with the surgeries, when they get into their 20s, they are 19 times more likely to commit suicide than the general population of the same age range? Do they tell them that? No. Yeah. 
That, yeah. that's, that's kind of important because that is the re- regret that so many of them live with. And they realize after the fact, what you said a few minutes ago, it is completely irreversible. And once they decide they can't, they want to reverse, they want to detransition and they can't, uh, and they're never going to be able to change things back. That's when they take their own lives. Again, 19 times, not 19% higher, but 19 times more likely to try to or to carry out suicide, which is something that I think everyone should know. I want to I want to close our conversation with the way you closed your your article. The doctors you worked with uh, um, at the transgender center frequently said about the treatment of our patients, "quote We are building the plane while we are flying it." Uh, no one should be a passenger on that kind of aircraft. I think that's a very apt uh, a metaphor, and that is pretty much what is going on here because everything that these clinics are doing is experimental, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And, and, and to put an adult on a plane like that might be one thing, but, but we are doing this to children. Yeah, exactly right. Um, let me actually close with this then, just because, again, we're emphasizing the influence on kids. Where are you when it comes to the drag queen story hours and the Pride Month um, parades in every city in which naked or nearly naked people um, are celebrated for their sex and their sexuality and their sexual orientation and they're coming up to children i mean i'm sure you've seen the you know the pictures and the videos of you know these furries or whatever these people who identify as dogs putting on their their masks and their thongs and crawling on all fours up to kids on parade routes and letting them pet them i mean this is the type of thing that is i think it, it needs to be it needs to be addressed. How do you, again, as a queer woman in a, in a, in a marriage with a trans man, how do you feel about those things? Uh, how I personally feel about them is that they really have no place around children. Where I am really pushing for legal changes around um, these kind of issues, I think the best bet right now for laws is around medically transitioning kids. That's where I want to see and support laws. And mm-hmm. also where I want to see and support laws change is around sports and um, protecting women's sports. Um, I, I think I, I, I agree on some level with um, pride should not be for kids, but I think that maybe a law is not the best way to get at that. I think if we can start scaling back things law-wise, with sports mm-hmm. and with medicine, we will slowly start to see the rest of those things be scaled back. That is a very interesting perspective on it, because I kind of had been thinking about it the other way, that if we scale back those other things, then the laws will be easier to change. But you're going in the reverse, and you might be exactly right. You might be exactly right. If we can get the laws changed, then maybe these things that are being pushed that can't be acted upon will start to slowly recede as well. Very, very, very accurate observation. Well, Jamie Reed, I thank you for coming on. You are a courageous person for doing what you're doing. I'm sure you have become a pariah of sorts in the LGBTQ community for for daring to speak out the way that you are. So that takes a lot of courage. Uh, I thank you for that. And I think ultimately, if we get a few more people like you, I think uh, maybe maybe, you know, all of all of um, uh, decent, I don't want to phrase it that way. I don't want to make it decency and indecency, but um, uh, our society and our rational. cultural norms, <laughs> rational people will thank you as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You, you thank nailed you so it. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much. God bless. Keep up the work, and uh, maybe we'll check in with you again. Thank you so much.
All right, that's uh, Jamie Reed. Uh, that's an important conversation to have. That's a tough conversation to have, too, but it really, really is. We're trying to bring... Just text AM to 52886. That's AM to 52886 to tell Congress to support AM radio. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know... And do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob France. On AM 1420, The Answer. I'll tell you what, that was a powerful interview. She's a powerhouse, uh, is uh, Jamie Reed. She she brought so much information. And we, you know, what can you do in a radio interview? We scratched the surface of the depth of the problem at these clinics. Just barely scratched the surface. You should read her entire article. I will post it on my Facebook page, which is Always Right Radio. I will post it on my Twitter feed, which is um, France Rants, F-R-A-N-T-Z-R-A-N-T-Z. I'll put it on my Truth Social, which is also Always Right Radio. You should read it in its entirety and learn more because uh, that's what it's going to take. Whistleblowers. Uh, truth tellers who are in this in the uh, uh, the system itself, if you will, the clinician system uh, that are that are butchering these children and uh, the devastating consequences thereof. It's going to take people like that. People like me, I go on the radio every day and say these things, and I just get dismissed as a homophobe and a bigot. And I don't care. I'm a big boy. I can take your stupid slings and arrows. Call me what you want to call me, but I am also telling the truth. The problem is nobody will believe it from a guy like me. They'll believe it from a queer woman married to a trans man who worked in a gender clinic like Jamie Reed. She just needs a platform. I'm going to give her this platform. I'm going to give her the Strictly Speaking platform. We'll have her on the uh, TV show, hopefully within uh, you know sometime in January. Um, I'm going to give her as much um, notoriety as I can, and uh, you should pay attention to that. And once you see that video or uh, uh, listen to the uh, uh, interview that we just did at whkradio.com, We'll make sure to isolate that interview so that you can hear it rather than hunt for it within the context of the whole three-hour show. Once you see it, share it with others. Like I said, that is going to be one of the more important things that we do. All right, final hour of the program this morning. It's nine minutes after 11 on this fist, Fist Bump Friday, the 22nd morning of the 12th month in the year of our Lord, 23. Reminder, we are, of course, off on Christmas Day Monday. Uh, We will have a best of, of show for you the following day on uh, Tuesday, and then we'll have some phenomenal guest hosts for us the rest of the week. We're going to have Peter Kersenow and Khalid Damar trading some days off there to uh, take us through all of next week. You're going to enjoy those conversations of that, I assure you. So for uh, the rest of this one, what do you say we say uh, good morning to the chairman of the Lorain County Republican Party, David Arredondo, who wants to give us a little preview of the March 19th Ohio primaries. David, good morning. Good to have you. Merry Christmas. 
Good morning, Bob. Merry Christmas to you as well. Can I get a virtual fist bump from you? You got it. You there got you go. it. I want to tell. I want to tell you. You did a great job uh, talking uh, over the last hour with your your guest, uh, and and you continue to provide us with some eye opening and very very informative guests on your show. And this was uh, this is one of the best ones. That well, that is had. very. That is very kind of you to say. It's such an important one, David. Uh, you know, and I know oh, you yeah. get this. Uh, and most, I think she used the right word at the end there, rational people do understand yep. that adults are free to do what they want with their lives. They're free to do what they yeah. want with their bodies. You know, this is, this is what freedom looks like. But children are not adults. Children in preformative states of their brain development cannot make life-altering decisions when they are in a state of, uh, of confusion. And uh, it just, it's just, you know, it's going to take uh, good people to, to stop that. And I think she's one of them. Well, I agree. I totally agree with what you just said there. So, David, let's talk politics now, and let's talk about the um, about the uh, primaries coming up in March. Uh, first, specifically to your your uh, purview in Lorain County, and then we'll talk uh, a little bit about the state. We had a uh, sure. you know, we had a we had a, a an endorsement from the former president yep. of the United States yep. in our state senate in yep. our uh, senate race, I should say, on the Republican side. Yeah. But but let's uh, let's do the local thing first for you in Lorain County. What do you need people to know? Well. It's it's really quite transformative what we've had here in Lorain County vis-a-vis the Republican Party and the election of candidates. So just to uh, say that, you know, four years ago at this time, we we only had one elected county official, and that was the county coroner. And uh, that's been a historical office that we've been able to hold because the Democrats never filed a candidate. But uh, four years ago, we had nothing at the county level. Uh, in 2020, uh, we overturned uh, two incumbent Republic, uh, Democratic uh, commissioners and an incumbent Democratic recorder. Um, we would have gotten the prosecutor, except that we had a, a nutcase for our prosecutor candidate. So we take it down to 2022, and we have uh, uh, the third county commissioner that we uh, we won. So in less than three years, we have really made a change in county government. Fast forward to now and the primary and what will be the general election, we have candidates uh, for all county offices with the exception of the county engineer. So in some respects, we can't get someone certified to be a county engineer candidate. They can't get a doctor to be the coroner. So we kind of have a trade-off in in that respect. But every other county office, the recorder, the treasurer, the prosecutor, the clerk of courts, uh, we have candidates. And then for two uh, judgeships at the common pleas level, we have two young candidates, and then uh, a third young candidate for domestic relations judge, and he's going to be taking on an incumbent uh, Democrat judge. So the bottom line is, in less than three years, we have really changed things greatly um, in the Republican Party and in our elected officials. So my mantra going in 
to this year is the days of Democrats running unopposed in Lorain County are over. So a couple of follow-ups. Um, one on the prosecutor. You mentioned there was a nutcase running last time around, but now you've got Tony Silla running against the incumbent prosecutor, J.D. Tomlinson. What do you think? Oh, I, I really think that uh, the Tony is going to do a very, very good job as a prosecutor, but he's already shaping up to be a good candidate. And that's what I have to say about all of the other candidates on our uh, ticket that they are sensible, that they are uh, hardworking, that they are in this to win. So it's 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 really it's really something uh, that I'm proud of that we have such a such a group of good candidates. Yeah, and uh, the one thing that I was disappointed by was in November the um, attempt and uh, what I think should have been successful to expand the county uh, commission to seven seats with seven districts. It was a, it was a you know a long time coming to get that on the ballot, and it finally made it to the ballot, and then it was defeated, defeated rather soundly. I was a big supporter of that, David. I don't know where you stood on it. Um, oh, I don't yeah. like oh, the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you? Yeah. Okay. T- oh, tell yeah, me, tell me what time. happened. Well, basically, you had a, uh, well, you had the top of the ticket with issue one. And I think a lot of those voters, um, you know, uh, they they supported that, and they in turn also uh, turned down issue 20. Do you realize that our county government <clears throat> is taken from being what was established in the 1800s? I mean, don't don't you think it would might be time to consider some changes in the 21st century? And yet, here's where where we are: that people, um, you know, heard a lot of propaganda against it, and and it and it gets me that the ones who probably were um, were most against it, or certainly didn't uh, support us, were the folks in the townships and the villages who are probably never, ever going to get a county commissioner from uh, their area. I mean, imagine Oberlin electing a county co- uh, you know, commissioner, and yet by the seven districts, they would have had a chance in their district to vote somebody. So, you know, you just have to, uh, you know, respect the voters' decision, and unfortunately it's going to stay this way. Yeah, it is unfortunate because the rest of the county should have just as much representation as as the two biggest cities in it do. And they, of course, pretty much run everything, which is Lorraine and Larry. So I I completely concur with that. So let's move to the state now, David. uh, We're talking to David Arredondo. He is the uh, uh, chairman of the Lorraine County Republican Party. So um, were you surprised? And how do you feel about uh, President Trump coming out uh, this past Monday with the announcement that Bernie Marino is his guy? He said the entire state should coalesce in you night around Bernie to defeat Sherrod Brown? Well, it was um, somewhat a surprise, although one of my candidates, uh, who's very tied uh, to to Bernie, told me about a month ago, he says, by Christmas, Trump will be coming out with an endorsement for Bernie. And I kind of raised my eyebrows like, oh, yeah, really? (laughs) And so he called me up yesterday and he says, didn't I tell you? I said, yeah, you did. You, 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 You gave me the heads up. So uh, I think 
I would just assume that we didn't have that endorsement right now, although I don't disagree with the endorsement. <laughs> Bernie is a fine uh, individual. He's a good friend of mine. Um, but so so is Frank, and, and so are uh, Matt Dolan. So I would have preferred that that Trump stay neutral and allow the voters to decide. Um, I still think that, you know, it's it's still... Well, the voters will still decide. They don't have to follow yeah. Donald Trump's recommendation. <laughs> that's, that's, that's correct. Yeah, it, it will. So uh, if you're asking, is this going to, uh, you know, guarantee that Bernie wins? No, I, I don't think so. I think you have two other formidable candidates who have... Uh, qualities that make them um you know desirable by uh you know a number of voters uh keep in mind that uh, the winner only needs 34 percent and so yeah i i think that uh it's entirely possible that uh the one of the other two could win but uh it really helps bernie a lot and does it uh, help does it help the cause though david Dave, David, does it help? Does it help the cause to defeat Sherrod Brown though to have a three-way race here? I mean, I think a lot of people once they saw Bernie get President Trump's endorsement, and they may have said the same thing if President Trump had endorsed, say, Frank LaRose, that the other mm-hmm. guys should drop because it would be better to unite, as President Trump said in his endorsement remarks, to unite around mm-hmm. in this case Bernie because all you know, spending twenty million dollars or or whatever it's going to take uh-huh. to, uh, you yeah. know, to to fight each other, and then it just only sucks the resources away from the battle against Sherrod yeah. Brown. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're you're <laughs> saying. Uh, I, I will say this, though, that the Lorraine County Republican Party mm-hmm. does not endorse in primaries. And so our philosophy is that the best candidate uh, will win in the primary. And I understand that, yeah, sometimes the, the races are going to expend monies, but I personally will never tell a candidate to stay out of the primary because so-and-so is my friend or whatever. It's kind of like everyone who comes and asks me, uh, Chairman, is it okay if I run, you know, for this office or that office? And, you know, 100% of the time I will say, hey, you're entitled to do that. You go ahead and you run. So, Yes, I realize that sometimes that primaries can get expensive and contentious. Um, but I think that ultimately, um, assuming that it's not going to be, uh, you know, dirty or, or, or hateful, that we will have the best candidate going up against Sherrod Brown. And the primary voters will tell, tell us who, who that will be. Yeah, and I and I certainly hope that is the case. We're talking to David Arredondo, the chairman of the Lorain County Republican Party. I'm going to ask you about District 9 because of the uh, weird situation there. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't reach into Lorain County anymore with the redrawn line, but it comes pretty doggone close into Erie County. Uh, and I think part of Huron County. But at any rate, uh, J.R. Majewski uh, won the primary a couple of years ago, was beaten pretty soundly by Marcy Kaptur. He's in again. Craig Riedel is in, four-term um, uh, state uh, representative. And now the guy who was supposed to be the speaker of the House of Representatives in Columbus, Derek Marin, who had that taken from him in a coup, 
between 22 Republicans teaming up with all of the Democrats to hand it to Jason Stevens. So now he's looking to elevate to Congress. It's a three, three-way race there, and it's already contentious between Riedel and Majewski. There is a lot of sparks. There are a lot of sparks flying uh, on Twitter as they battle one another. What are your thoughts on that race, David? I listened to your uh, interviews this past week, and again, you know, you, you really do the best to try to bring out as much info as possible. That is, uh, again, um, we're just going to have to see how the primary comes out. Unfortunately, the last time that we had that three-way primary, uh, Teresa Gavarone uh, and Riedel did, did not win, and they lost to Majewski. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that Teresa would have been uh, uh, the best candidate, and uh, I was hoping she would have won. And I think that she would have done a better uh, job against uh, Marcy Kaptur. So, uh, unfortunately, she's not in this time. And it's, it's hard to say, again, with a, a three-way race or so, I think the edge is going to go to Majewski. Wow. Uh, and uh, and do you think that's the best? And again, I know you don't endorse, so please don't take yeah. this as, as I'm asking you yeah. for an endorsement of one of the three. Is that um, the best course given what happened last time? Because again, it was a it was a thir- it wasn't close. It was a 13 point route for Marcy Kaptur, yeah. and she to me uh, has got to be one of the one of the priorities I think for Ohio Republicans to remove her. Uh, from Washington, D.C. She has been a disaster for, for, for what? How many years has she been in now? She's been there for oh, like 30 I, years. I she's think, been reelected yeah, probably 15 yeah, times. Yeah. <laughs> At yeah. least 30 years, yeah. Yeah, so I, she's got to go. Can J.R. beat her this time around, David? It, it, it's entirely possible. Um, and, and the reason why is because of the political landscape going into 2024. Okay, so right now we see that the top of our ticket and in the last couple of elections in 2020 and 2022, it was the top of our ticket in the state of Ohio that helped our candidates down ticket. So just to say, um, Donald Trump right now is leading in Ohio. I think he, he might have a 10, 14 point lead mm-hmm. over Biden. So we know that Ohio is, is going to go, whether it's 10 points or 14 points. Last two times, it was eight points each so you know if he wins that big because the the turnout of people for him it's going to help whoever's running against sherrod brown and i'm going to say this right now i i believe sherrod brown's done and so one of our three guys is going to take take him out and so when you go down ticket then the next spot is going to be congress bob ladd is going to win our district here mm-hmm. And so when you've got folks who have already voted Republican in two or three races, it certainly is going to help Majewski if he or, or Riedel or whoever else is going to be the, the candidate. So it's entirely possible that because of the change in the, in the landscape, not so much of, you know, J.R. Majewski, I believe that that candidate will, will pos, you know, can possibly take out Marcy Can I throw a monkey into the wrench here, David? Um, oh, try. Go ahead. And, and, try and what I mean by that is um, the presidential primaries may be over by that time. I mean, if Iowa yeah. and New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, you know, mm-hmm. if the, in South Carolina, if the early states go as heavily for Trump as things are polling, 
Um, I almost feel like there might be a lot of Ohio Republicans who feel like, well, I don't really need to go vote in the presidential primary. Trump hasn't wrapped up. And if they don't, then, of course, the down ticket effect is obvious. Then they're not there to vote for, you know, Bernie Moreno or vote for whomever in the Senate or in the in the in the ninth or any of the other races as well. Do you think there could be a low Republican turnout if Trump kind of has it all sewn up by the time we get to Ohio? No. And let me just qualify what I was saying in my scenario. That is what I was talking about November. So can, you know, J.R. Majewski could be running in November. I know okay, yeah, yeah. no, you're now. right. Okay. That's what I asked you. I asked yeah. you in a general yeah. against Marcy. You're right. correct. But yeah. I'm talking right. about just okay. now in terms of Ohio's yeah. primary turnout. Do you think that, that President think, Trump's I, victory no. may, may, de- may de- no. depress that turnout? No, no, it's not going to. I mean, his popularity is going to stay up as, as, as it is right now. And keep in mind, we have the Senate race. So people are going to, t- you know, turn out for the Senate race. We have some other races. We have a commissioner prime. We have two commissioners being primaried. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking of Lorain County, but also for the state. Um, Bernie's got his people. Uh, Frank's got his people. Matt's got his people. Those folks aren't going to sit home. And uh, no, I don't. I don't. You know, in 2016, we had Trump people come out, and they only voted for Trump and not the rest of our ticket. 2020, that changed. Uh, 2024, I believe the Trump people are going to stay, and they're going to go down the ticket in the primary, and they're also going to do that in the general election. All right. That's the analysis I was looking for. That's why we brought you on. David Arredondo, the uh, chairman of the Lorain County Republican Party, laying it out for us primary style. And, yes, we looked ahead to November uh, as well in a potential general election matchup there. So, David, thank you so much for coming on. A very Merry Christmas and a blessed holiday to you and your family. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you in 2024. Thanks. Thank you, Bob. Merry Christmas to you and your family. God bless. We'll thank you, you, sir. in 2024. You better believe it. All right. It's 1128. Time out. Final timeout. We're going to come back one more segment. If you Denise Pellegrini, Bloomberg Radio. Life and the pursuit of happiness. Always right radio with Bob France on the answer. All right, eleven thirty-six. Final segment of the hour. Final segment of the broadcast. Final segment of the week. And dare I say, final live segment of the year? Yeah, can you believe it? We have uh, Christmas Day on Monday, so we will have the Christmas in America special that we bring you from our good friends at the Ohio Roundtable every Christmas morning. We're going to have that for you on uh, Christmas Day Monday. Uh, So thanks to uh, Dave Zanotti and Rob Walgate and the crew at the Ohio Roundtable for putting that fantastic production on every year, and we're going to bring that to you uh, on Christmas Day. And then on Tuesday, we're going to have a best of, as you look back at some of the highlights of the year, Seth is busy putting together some of the... um, segments and interviews and conversations that uh, kind of mark the year. So we're going to have that for you at uh, or on uh, Tuesday, the 26th. Then you're going to have some Khalid Namar in for me on Wednesday next week. Then you have Peter Kersenow on Thursday. Then you got Khalid Namar again on Friday. So it's going to be a huge way to wrap up the year next, uh, next week. And uh, I really, really want to say thank you to everybody. And uh, I'll say it again at the end of the broadcast here in a few minutes, but Merry Christmas to you and yours. Uh, It's been a phenomenal ride, and we have such an important year in front of us. Okay, let's wrap uh, with some great phone calls and conversation. Let's go to, how about Flakewood, Ohio, which is uh, where you can find the uh, auto service garage of our good friend Charlie, the politically incorrect 
and now amputee mechanic. Hey, Charlie, what's going on, brother? How are you? <laughs> hey, Bob. How are you? America. I understand you. I understand you know how to outfit the cars for uh, amputees. Uh, yep, I I do that uh, once in a while for people. Well, you've done it on a couple of different occasions, I'm told. Yep, one for our uh, our buddy Seth over there. Yep, yep. And uh, and then he's gotten me uh, some other people. That he wants to rename you. He's the one to. who told me to call you the the uh, the uh, 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 the amputee mechanic now instead of the police. Yes. So yep. that's that's so, that, that that's what Seth tells me. But anyway, Charlie, what's going on, my friend? What's on your mind? Nothing. I just wanted to call in before you weren't on anymore until next year, and uh, and say Merry Christmas to everybody and all the listeners and everybody out there. Uh, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about was uh, I, I don't understand the logic, and I and I did miss part of your last guest uh, interview there. But I, I just can't wrap my hand around or my head around the logic of of not endorsing during the primary when we actually have Republican choices or choices under you know different choices for the Republican candidate as opposed to endorsing. I mean, yeah, you know, and uh, you know, vote for the Republican over the Democrat during the general. I mean, obviously, um, for the most part, I'm sure. But you know, depending on who you talk to, but I, I just can't get under get in. In that mindset of why wouldn't you offer some sort of guidance, you know, to I, I think, yeah, on, I, I on think your Republican choice. Yeah, I think different county, you know, uh, counties do it differently, obviously. And the the feeling is, and I know you're very tied into into the Ohio GOP and to the you know to Cuyahoga County Cuyahoga GOP and county. so forth. But but um, but I, I think the mindset among some, and it appears to be David's and the Lorain County GOP, is that uh, we don't want to winners and losers from among our great candidates we because then if uh, the people we person we endorse doesn't win then our support for the winner is going to look shallow and look hollow and it's like well we we didn't want this guy but we're going to continue to say he's the best person for the job anyway so let the let right. the people do the primary and then we can put our full support behind the winner i think that's just the the mindset and you know different people approach it differently but i think that's theirs yeah i guess i can i can see that part well Anyways, uh, thanks for that. Thanks for another great year. And uh, everybody, remember to make sure that you watch the best Christmas movie, Die Hard. (laughs) We didn't have that conversation. I told Seth, Seth, get on the air. Seth, I told Seth like a, like a month ago, or maybe two, three weeks ago, anyway, we needed to have a segment where we debate the merits of Die Hard as a Christmas movie. Look, I reached and Seth out. Seth forgot. No, I did not forget. It's written out of my notebook. I'm staring at it right Seth, now. I what, reached what do you out, have to say for yourself? I reached out to numerous people about it, and he said he wanted the right people. Well, there wasn't the right people. I wasn't go. gonna well, put the right you. people were anybody who's on either side anybody, of it, so that we could have a fight. I, I could have done that. Well, <laughs> All right, well, let's and, do and it right now. I, let's I, do it right I, now. Make your case, Charlie. Take my case? Yeah, make your, make your case. How is it a Christmas movie? It, yeah, 30 it, seconds. Takes place takes place during Christmas. Yeah? It takes place at a during a Christmas party. Yeah? There's there's Christmas music throughout the movie. Yeah? And Christmas themes. Okay? A direct reference to Santa Claus is made. <laughs> yeah? And <laughs> and and there was and there was wrapping paper and Christmas tape used. Uh, at the end of the movie to hold the gun to his back uh, so that he could 
dispatch the uh, the bad guy. So if a, know, so if so if an action movie takes place uh, during somebody's birthday, is it a birthday movie? <laughs> Game set match, Charlie. Only if his birth only if his birthday is Jesus Christ. <laughs> no, that is so weak. I said it to you before, and I'll say it to you again, and I'll say it to you too, Seth, for crying out loud. If this was a Christmas movie, then so was Lethal Weapon, because that happened during That's Christmas exactly time right. as well. Thank you. Thank you. And Lethal much. Weapon yes, is agree. not a Christmas movie either. I agree, yes. Lethal Weapon is also one of the best Christmas movies oh ever. Oh, my gosh. And, and, and Die Hard, and, and, and I know I sent you this, but if you follow the... Uh, Tell the, me this. The, would the you story? sit with your five-year-old in front of It's a Wonderful Life? <laughs> would you? Yes, you would. If, would you sit with yes. your five-year-old in front of um, uh, Frosty? Yes, you would. Would you sit with your five-year-old in front of Rudolph or or the Polar Express or any of those? Yes, you would. <laughs> would you sit with your five-year-old as Bruce Willis is 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 wrapping a chain around a terrorist's neck and hanging him to death, and then that terrorist somehow survived, and then it took the black cop to put a bullet between the eyes on screen of the, of the terrorist at the end? And would you would you would you watch that with your five-year-old? on Christmas morning? It's yes. an adult Christmas movie. <laughs> oh, no! Oh! And, and also, now he changes the whole narrative. Now it's an adult Christmas movie as and, opposed and, to and those kids' Christmas movies. Me, then there's the adult-only version. Oh, let interesting. This, let me get the last thing. Let me get this last thing out. It's also, if you if you read into the story of Hanukkah, it is also equally a Hanukkah Christmas movie where an, an, an underdog force fights back and takes back a tower that was taken over by a hostile force. Oh so my I'll, gosh. I'll split the difference. Now here. you're going, now you're about, you've, now you've changed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.